One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Face to Face. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community, and communities create social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So the next interview is with a guy by the name of Brett Matthews, and he has done many, many things in his life. He's a development worker, he's an academic, he's a guy who, I guess, sees the world uh, not just through numbers, but sees the importance of being able to understand numbers and how they relate to financial transactions, to savings accounts, to loans and credit and so on. And then he takes that and he connects it to the importance of cultures around the world and how he talks he talks about about uh, over a billion people uh, potentially who are not financially literate and then takes us through the reasons why this is essential and why it's important. One of the things I, you know, he talks about uh, financial inclusion, which I think is a really interesting notion from a development perspective, from a social change perspective. The interview is riddled with uh, book references and things that you need to to, uh, to to listen to and to write down. I think you're going to enjoy it a great deal. Brett has got a lot going on and a lot of things uh, to, to consider. So uh, dig in and... Enjoy the next few minutes with Brett Matthews. We're talking about an ecology of commerce. I think you're going to enjoy this interview. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We are uh, joined by another special guest today. Actually, all of my guests are special, Brett. Um, and Brett Matthews, thanks for joining us. Thank you. 
Uh, he is the executive director and founder of an organization called My Oral Village, and that's O-R-A-L, and he's going to talk about that in a second. It's uh, um, Brett and I have met uh, digitally first, uh, I guess a couple of months ago. We've had breakfast together, and we have a similar passion um, for Cambodia. He is uh, an academic, he's a researcher, he's a development guy. Uh, thanks again, um, Brett, for joining us today. So let's just start really sort of ground zero here. What is your organization all about? You you talk about, uh, your, your bio talks about being dedicated, quote, to lighting the path out of poverty for the poor, well, hang on, let me finish that, for the poorest billion rural citizens of our planet, close quote. Tell me uh, why you're dedicated to that, I guess, and, and what Oral Village is all about, or my Oral Village. Well, uh, thanks, Dave. Yeah. Um, uh, the poorest billion adults in the developing world are mostly concentrated in the rural areas and, and my passion is to fight poverty and to find a way for us to to help people who are stranded in in this seemingly impossible position where where infant mortality is so high life expectancy is so short um, the endless struggle for subsistence is prevents them from learning, prevents them from going to school, prevents them, and the weak institutions that surround them limit their possibilities. Um, it, it seems to me that nobody should have to go through this or right. be born into this kind of thing in, in, in this day and age. And we are going to have to find a way to change this yeah, absolutely. Uh, before uh, before too long is is finished. It, this really is as important a work in our generation as as addressing climate change and, for and, a different set and, of reasons. I mean, and is it possible to get the poorest billion rural citizens of our planet out of poverty? Well, there's no real reason why not. I mean, the re the reason they're there is not because they're inherently inferior to us, for example. Um, Which is unfortunately, uh, as I've found in development over the years, a lot of people kind of think that way, or there's an inherent sort of implicit undertone. Yeah, I, I know, and um, that undertone is really uh, unfortunate. Um, it's also basically wrong. I mean, common sense suggests to us that, uh, that we as humans have evolved over, um, over a period of time, but um, biologically our evolution has been virtually equivalent everywhere. There's, there's, the, the, the differences biologically are trivial. The only real differences are in terms of where we grew up culturally mm -hmm. um, and accidents of history that have led, as, for example, somebody like Jared Diamond depicts extremely well in Guns, Germs, and Steel, towards a situation where some um, societies and, and areas just develop faster than others because of lucky accidents related to geography uh, and that sort of thing. It has very little to do with actual human capabilities as such. Yeah, I think I think Bono, just because they're in town, I think we should talk about them briefly, uh, but U2 is playing tonight and tomorrow in Toronto. But Bono said, uh, you know, probably took Diamond's quote and, and talked about privilege and accidents of geography. So, so I grew up here in the West. I grew up in Rexdale, a city outside of Toronto. I was able to get educated. I, you know, that that for me was an accident of geography. Why should it be that an accident of geography um, disables somebody from having access to that kind of thing? Exactly. Why is it that an accident of geography condemns uh, a very intelligent human being to basically one year of such substandard schooling that they can't even learn anything in it, and then a lifetime of subsistence farming cut short by uh, malaria at some point <laughs> yeah. or some other preventable disease? But so, but but interestingly, you don't you don't deal really with that kind of thing. That's not to say that you haven't worked uh, alongside of organizations who do that kind of work. But you're you're really all about financial literacy, are you not? Well, uh, I, these things are all interrelated. Sure. Um, and uh, and in my mind, um, I, I I I suppose you could say that I see this in terms of freedom. Um, huh. hmm. uh, financial services. Uh, microfinance has not really thought through the freedom side of things as well as it should. Um, uh, a lot of the focus has been on credit, but that um, 
that is a focus which is a kind of a top-down paternalistic sort of focus. The idea is basically if we can somehow hand people money, even if it is in the form of debt, um, uh, they'll get themselves out of poverty. Right. Um, in, in, in reality, the poorest billion are not really in a position where they can afford to take on those risks. And what they really need is a, a safe way to save money. Uh, and, and we haven't provided that uh, okay. for, for, for the most part. But if you think about it, if you have a safe way to save money, you can choose what you do with it. Um, and you can gain a level of control over your life which you couldn't gain through very many other interventions I can think of. So it's not about it's not about having bags full of gold or bags full of cash. This is about the security to be able to use that cash even if it's a small bag in the way that you want to. Correct. And 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 the security to be able to um uh place it in um in a place that is safe right. uh, until such a time as you have enough of it that it becomes valuable. Uh, I have a good mentor. His name is Stuart Rutherford. He wrote a book called The Poor and Their Money, uh, in which he talks about the building up of what he calls usably large sums of money, <laughs> usably large lump sums of money. And, and, and he, he argues in his book that, um, that poor people do not have a way to accumulate usably large lump sums of money, except by borrowing. Mm. Uh, and the reason they don't is because we haven't provided them with savings. Right. Right. Doesn't have, now? I'm just going to uh, draw from um, some. Uh, I'm not an economist, and uh, a couple of my friends listening to this just laughed out loud. But um, Hernando de Soto doesn't he talk about an extra legal economy? Where I mean, back when he wrote the Mystery of Capital, I think he talked about several trillion dollars of money in in the global south that's being basically hid between mattresses, or that's being buried in the ground because people don't trust you know, local banking or local financial institutions, or they just don't have access to them at all. Yes, and, and I, w I, I, would, I would say with respect to that that, um, that a lot of that is not actually stored in the form of cash at all. Mm. So it gets rapidly right. converted into in-kind forms. Um, poor people actually have significant um, uh, chunks of, I, well, assets. I, I wouldn't assets, yeah. Call them well. Well, well, like cattle, for but, instance, but, right? But, but, but there are assets that are greater than we sometimes think if we look at them and say, well, this person, this householder earns $200 a year, so they can't have very much. But in fact, they have something in the way of assets, and, and those assets help to protect them from risk. Um, uh, they, they, they may be animals. Um, there may be some land. Uh, there, there, there may be building materials that are accumulating right. until they can upgrade their house. Right, right. There may be, there may be in in a place like Southeast Asia or South Asia, gold or jewelry, a little, small parts of it. Um, uh, so, so people people acquire and accumulate these kind of assets, um, and they don't convert them into cash precisely because they don't trust the cash, um, the cash-based uh, system. Um, or most of the institutions right. offer the, offer those options to them, but a, but a, but a great part of our challenge um, is going to be to to help them safely and securely move themselves into a cash economy because they can't get out of poverty without doing that. It's a it's an inescapable part of the process. So are you? I mean, sorry for the the polarization here, but do you you know would you align yourself more as a free marketer? Or, or more of a socialist. I mean, or, or are you kind of, you know, I just your comment about we need to help them do that safely and securely because otherwise they're not going to raise themselves out of poverty. Um, I don't really consider myself to be either. Um, uh, I, I do not agree though with the um, with the position of socialists that poor people are better off just being poor rather than joining a capitalist. Right. 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 <laughs> planet that the rest of right. us live on. Um, we, m m many of us may criticize or dislike that planet, but um, it is the planet we have, for better or worse. Right. And, right. Uh, it is the modern world that we live in. And I think it's a very self-indulgent sort of luxury if you're a, a, a professor of, of Marxist philosophy at a university right. somewhere making $150,000 <laughs> a year to say, right. oh, well, um, you know, villagers should not be tainted by capitalism. Uh, and, you know, this kind of work of microfinance is just corrupting everybody. It's a bad idea. Um, I, I don't think those people have ever faced these incredible these. choices where they have to decide 
whether to pull a child out of school and, and have them grow up illiterate because they need extra extra work to uh, on the farm to pay off a debt or to or, or to live for that matter yeah right? to feed the family yeah. do you d- brett do you make it this is wonderful stuff by the way do you make a distinction between um well uh, i guess f- micro uh, financial institutions do but where do you lean are you a l- micro lender or are you a micro saver oh i i, I think they're, bo- they're both important but okay. um but part of the problem is the way microfinance has evolved in the past 40 years has been very lopsided towards microcredit. Hmm. And that has multiple problems associated with it. At a, at a household level, the biggest problem with it is that it leaves out the poorest billion. I mean, it, right. it, it really does become a matter of, well, if you don't have significant assets already, you're not going to take the risk of borrowing um, because you don't have a cushion in case something goes wrong. Right. So, um, uh, whereas if you provide people with uh, a safe, secure place to save, as for example, the Modern Savings Group movement has been doing, uh, and you know there's there's over 10 million people saving in savings groups around Africa and Asia now. Uh, that's a very very important process, uh, which is which is picking up. Um, uh, so so I, I I think the problem in the past has simply been been that. Uh, you know, we've been credit obsessed. And this is not really solving the fundamental problem, and it can't solve the fundamental problem. Uh, It takes two legs to walk, and it takes both savings and credit to get people out of poverty. So can you, uh, I'd love to hear how you define uh, poverty. Um, You know, you've got your your extreme and your moderate and your relative sort of distinctions, Uh, you know, according to the OECD or the CIA or the World Bank. You've been on the ground. You spent a lot of time on the ground in in the global south. What what stands out to you about this idea of extreme poverty? Or sorry, poverty. P. Poverty, not extreme. Or I'm not going to make any distinction. I'll let you do that. <laughs> I'll let you do that. You add the footnotes, Brett. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, well, you know, I'm a big fan of the March of Sen, and uh, to me, poverty is really about the absence of freedom. Um, and uh, it's about the absence of an ability to make uh, good decisions because mm. your resources are too constrained and because you face too many adverse shocks all the time that you, you're never you're, you're you're just in the middle of recovering from one and another one hits, um, and and you don't have the asset cushion to to um, to recover from them quickly or easily. Mm-hmm. Um, poverty is a very um, it's it, it's about having very limited decisions and and a very limited set of opportunities. And of course, the lower your capabilities, the less your decisions are. As, as we gain more education, as we gain more skills, um, we have more capabilities, um, uh, we, that increases our freedom. But, 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 but not only that, the, the, the stronger and more effective the institutions are in a country, and the more those institutions are focused on, on uh, improving the overall welfare of their citizens, um, the more choices we have as well. So. Those kinds of um, choices exist in the developed world, and that kind of freedom exists in the developed world. And it may not be perfect, but it's pretty darn good. Right. Uh, uh, certainly compared to anything our ancestors might have imagined. So, so Jeffrey Sachs talks about, you know, the first rung of the economic ladder. You know, you've got Easterly talking about searchers and planners and making those distinctions. Both of them seem to polarize the issue to some degree, it seems to me. But... Do you believe microfinance is about getting people onto that first rung uh, of the ladder to say, okay, now I can do this on my own? Now I, you know, and so, so is that the role of nonprofits? Is that the role of civil society? Uh, is that the result, role of a wealthy donor to come alongside uh, people who are empowered and just build them up a little, encourage, affirm, uh, validate? Does, does any of that make sense? Well, I, I think, again, it just gets back to, you know, where microfinance has gone and what it's done as opposed to what it should have done and mm. still can do. Right. Um, uh, microfinance has always been conflated, even by experts who, who ought to know far better and do, with microcredit. And so they've treated it as being microcredit. They have built a system which um, is almost entirely externally funded. So... So you have these. Um, so you have lots and lots of foundations in the West sending money to microcredit institutions in order to fund them on the operating assumption that poor people can't finance their own lives, and um, 
and you have things like Kivo, where you know mm-hmm. they, they they jump in and they collect money from from well-intentioned people in America, who then send it off to to um, to, to to lend. Uh, the reality is, microfinance needs to walk on both legs. It needs to walk on the savings leg and the credit leg. And um, in order to do that, um, well, first of all, the savings in every other country on this planet <laughs> or in every country in the developed world, right, right. Um, uh, savings funded the credit. Uh, mm. But we've built this lopsided structure which doesn't do that. Um, that helps with uh, vulnerability management at the household level. Um, and it also ensures um, uh, it strengthens internal controls and local good governance and institution building at the level mm-hmm. of the institution itself because now the institution is not just responsible for, for money that's been handed to it by some uh, beneficent person. Right. In America, the, the institution is responsible for the money of, of poor people in its own neighborhood, and that changes the way it manages, obviously, the lending, the underwriting process. <laughs> well, there's a woman. There's a woman I've worked with in in, in just outside of Phnom, well, in Phnom Penh, who's been working on micro savings for years, and and she talks about just the the level of of community and pride and relationship that's mm-hmm. built around this kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so you've got a family that maybe is getting, I don't know, 50 U.S. dollars from me, let's say, because I sign on to her website, but she has... Uh, enabled them and affirmed them to say, you got to pay 25 US dollars for this water jar. So yes, it's 75 bucks. So there's a, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a sense of ownership. There's a sense of pride that goes along with this. And, and I mean, it seems to make a lot of sense, but that's, it's also, I suppose, in some cases with respect to a lot of, um, fundraising and a lot of, uh, relief work, I suppose, a missing component. And that sense of ownership and pride can strengthen, um, um, Institutions can lead to the construction mm. of strong institutions, and, mm. and 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 that again is one of those things that's missing. But 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 to get back to yep. your original point about orality and 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 uh, um, well, you talk you talk about I think oralizing mm-hmm. a group of people, and I want to I want to hear more about that and what that actually. Well, means. actually, oralizing uh, microfinance, um, re- the retail interface of microfinance. So so um, um, the what did you call it? The retail interface. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, if you walk into a, a branch of a bank, you're looking at the retail interface of a bank. Right. Uh, and, and you do a transaction, and you, you write, write in documents. In other words, <laughs> how easy is it for me to get my money in, and how easy is it for me to, me to get it out, basically, and more importantly, understand it? Right, right. Okay, okay. Now, 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 now the, 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 the theory of oral culture was developed by a gentleman named Walter J. Ong. And Ong wrote a brilliant book called Orality and Literacy, which I think was published first in about 1980. Hmm. Um, uh, and he sort of compares orality and literacy. But he, he also actually he worked, before he went down to the University of Michigan, he worked at the University of Toronto. Um, hmm. And he was, um, and in fact, you can find origins of a lot of his thinking in, in the work of Marshall McLuhan. Oh, is that right, eh? Okay. Yeah, yeah. He, he wrote a book called The Gutenberg Galaxy, which discusses right. the evolution yep. from... Um, from morality. I'll put links to all of these books, by the way, in your bio on the on the podcast webpage. <laughs> sure, okay, okay. <laughs> or not in your bio, but on the overview of what we've talked about today. So, right, make right. it easier for the listeners. Okay, okay. Yeah, and and so um, in in. In, in, in any case, what what um, what Ong and, and McLuhan really emphasize the, the the notion that the medium is the message. Well, the medium um, that microfinance has emphasized, I, I I would say it's perfectly summarized by the loan contract, which an illiterate person cannot read and which they have to put a thumbprint on to borrow. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really the, and 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 that of course communicates something far more profound than simply that I'm lending you money. <laughs> right. Right. Sure. Um, uh, now, the challenge has been that, that microfinance institutions rapidly realized that although a poor person would take a loan um, uh, because they were giving that person money, they were handing them money mm-hmm. when they, in exchange for their thumbprint, basically. Right. Um, uh, so, um, and, and the poor person understood, yes, I have a series of repayments I have to make. Um, and they would have them explained orally what what those were, but they do they 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 wouldn't have like any kind of backup for it, right? Um, because they can't read read what's there. Um, however, what would what 
microfinance institutions could not do in that situation was convince a poor person mm. to bring extra cash that they might have earned from the market and deposit it in a savings account and receive back an equally unintelligible document <laughs> um, and get the poor person to put their thumbprint on it and give them the money. Right. Right. Um, poor people may be desperate, but they're not stupid. Right. And right. It, it does occur to them that if they're going to hand money in large sums, important amounts of their, their yeah. cash, yeah, sure. to another person, uh, they need a receipt they can recognize and understand and decode. Yeah, it's almost like, what's the Khmer translation for, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, you're right. You know? Like, right. really? You want me to give you money and I'm gonna get, and all I get is a thumbprint out of it? That's it? Now, um, um, the microfinance institutions in the developing world essentially said, this is too much work for us. Mm. Um, it really doesn't, you know, and, and, and we don't know how to deal with it and we're just not going to go there. Right. Uh, but the reality is, in doing that, they wrote off the billion poorest adults on, on our planet mm. because mm -hmm. uh, those people, for the most part, are not in a position where credit by itself is, is going to come close to getting them out of poverty. Um, uh, they need the savings uh, component uh, in order to build up assets, in order to reduce vulnerability. They face more vulnerabilities than, than, than the billion less poor adults above them. Uh, in the economic system, um, who, for the most part, are illiterate. Mm -hmm. um, there's almost a, a billion illiterate adults in the world today. There's uh, our, la our latest data, there's 775 million adults. Um, but in addition to that, we know that a lot of the census data underestimates that. UNESCO, right. um, UNESCO has found that, for example, people are automatically registered as being literate if they've reached grade three, because the assumption is that if they've reached grade three, uh, they should be literate. Right. Um, in reality, the decline in the quality of the primary school systems since, um, since countries became independent has um, resulted in a situation where that's by no means always the case. Um, uh, we were just doing some work, uh, and we were working closely with the primary school system uh, uh, in in East Africa, we found that uh, we, we were interviewing people who were in grade six and grade seven and couldn't pass basic numer basic numeracy and literacy um, tests that we were we were giving them. Um, and and this is this is a problem that is that is well known there. They're trying to address it, but um, but the reality is you can't simply use um, primary school as a proxy for right. literacy. Right. Can Brett, you know, when we first met face-to-face -face and, and uh, uh, we had breakfast, we, you told me many stories and so on about just, you know, the work that you were doing. You, I don't know where it was, but it was probably East Africa, and you talked about a woman in, in a process, not a process even, but just something where you asked her to count to a certain number, and she could do that. But then you asked her to do it using numbers. Uh, yeah. On a piece of paper, I right. think it was, right. and and there was this, and this interests me a great deal from from uh, not only from a development perspective because it's all about context, but also philosophically as well. I mean, this is a really profound comment, I think, on 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 our context, our environment, uh, the filters and the lenses we see the world through, and so on. Yeah, and 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 I think what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to apply. Um, Ong's thinking and the thinking of Ong and McLuhan, uh, media ecology principles, if you like, um, uh, to to um, to the problem of, of, of financial inclusion, mm -hmm. achieving financial mm -hmm. inclusion. Mm -hmm. nice. What um, what what happened in that particular case was um, we were in Tanzania there, um, although we did the same thing actually in Cambodia. In both cases, we gave people 107,500 units of their own currency. Which in Cambodia um, is approximately $25, right. and in Tanzania is approximately $60, and uh, so in both cases between about 15 and 20 notes, you know, right. thousands and ten thousands, right. thousands, and so on. And uh, and we and people run into this currency all the time. They they have to deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis. So we ask them to count, and um, across those two countries, about three quarters successfully counted, and told us orally how much money. Uh, we had we had given to them. Okay. Um, 
we then showed them uh, a list of five written numeral strings, one of which was 107,500, one of which was 17,500, mm. one of which was 1,075,000, uh, one of which was 207,500, and one of which was 175,000. Uh, so we moved the zeros around, we, we added orders of magnitude, reduced them, and so on. Um, now, uh, out of 80 people that we, we looked at in those two places, uh, only 12 of them got that right. Wow. Um, they, simply, they simply didn't know. Um, and and uh, half of them said the question was completely impossible to answer. They had absolutely no idea. Um, and couldn't and couldn't see the connection between, or or maybe they did see the connection, uh, but but here they, I mean, so you know, phenomenologically they got it right, philosophically they got it right. They could count the money, but they couldn't see the connection to the numbers on the page. Yeah. Um, uh, so I guess what I'm asking is where where was the disconnect? Is is that what illiteracy really is all about? Because on one level they kind of they still get it right on right? on some level. Very well. Well, on some level, they still get it, right? I mean, this is, I, I just counted out my money, but right. you're trying to translate that into something that, that means more than just a thumbprint. Okay, and, and yeah, and again, it turns out there's a Canadian in this picture. His name is Alan Pavio, hmm. um, and he was, um, he was the author of a book on, he, in fact, he was a developer of a theory called dual coding theory. Dual coding theory. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and... Um, and he's written a number of books on it. I, I, I think he's still alive. Um, uh, but th this would have been in about the, the 60s and 70s. Okay. Um, and, um, um, yeah, the, the basic idea is that we have... The fact that we can orally encode um, a, a numeral string, such as 107,500, yep. does not mean that we can um, we can decode it if it appears in text, because text is a completely different coding system. The two coding systems are completely different. And, and, and in fact, when we compared Swahili and English, the Swahili and English are quite similar in oh. the way they orally encode okay. the numbers and okay. also in the relationship between that oral encoding and the written encoding. So to take a really simple example of this, um, uh, 107,500. Did you did you just hear me utter the word zero? Uh, <laughs> is this a trick question, Brett? <laughs> I'm just asking you. <laughs> a hundred, I, you know what? In truth, I don't know, but I heard the number. 107,500. Yeah. Does it have a zero in it? Yes. It does. 107,500. When, it, when I speak the number, do you... Oh, what? no, of course not, of course not. I, I guess I was looking at it written on the page, but no, right, right, no, right. of course not, okay. no, okay. not when you speak it, no. And, and and how many zeros are there in this number? Uh, oh, come on, I'm doing the interview here, Brett. <laughs> um, uh, three zeros. Right, right. So, um, so okay, okay, so if you're, a, if you're an illiterate person and you know how to do the oral encoding... Yeah. Okay. You then have to figure out. You, you then have to learn a completely different decoding system. That's basically mm. what I'm saying. So you right. have to look at that, and 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 you see there's there's no direct clues that lead you from the utterance 107,500 to the written number with its various digits displayed, and there's no automatic um, cues that can tell you how to unpack mm. the oral encoding and translate it into um, the text-based encoding, or, or vice versa, because the two are actually quite independent. So it's, it's possible. So, 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 so you see this very often, actually, in the developing world. You see a situation where people um, um, learn how to um, become very good with arithmetic in their heads because they, they go to the markets all the time and they're right. constantly yep. selling things. Sure, yeah. And, and, and they do all sorts of transactions, but they can't, they can't actually read it. A five or six interesting number. interesting because because they they never do it and and that's something you learn in school and yet they're able to survive at the market and they're able to come home with vegetables and get a better deal from market a versus market b you know very often i i uh, i think of this as being a little bit like being blind right um in both cases you're dealing with a disability 
um, which limits a certain exp- experience that you would otherwise be having. Right. Um, and a certain way of decoding the world, which you would otherwise be able to do. Um, blind people can be extremely effective at adapting and at not letting other people know that they have a disability. Because, of course, if you let other people know that you have a disability, right. you're right. vulnerable to them. So, sure, sure. So people tend to try to avoid that. I, I, I think we've kind of been duped as literate people. <laughs> by our Great own line. stupidity, frankly. By our own stupidity? Um, uh, yes, by our own stupidity. Um, uh, into assuming that because um, illiterate people look like they're doing fine, they must be literate. Interesting. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So therefore, we impose a banking system, we bring in this uh, style of numbers and Correct. this subculture and all that, and it Correct. should work. Yeah. And then it doesn't work, and we we end up making the wrong, and we come to the wrong conclusions. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's fabulous. It's it's everything that's wrong with development. <laughs> right. It's and 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 had this financial institution, whoever they were or whoever they are, had come in, done a little more listening. I mean, I'm looking at your saving and loan book right now, which I think is Thai. No, it's not Thai. No, actually, it was it was that one was designed uh, with UNCDF in the Solomon Islands. In where? The Solomon Islands. Ah, right. And I'd love to talk about some of these tools that you guys are using because they're just so damn practical. It's just, it's ridiculous. But, and, and how you're using illustrations and so on. Yeah, so, so my point being, had, had they come in and done, asked a few better questions, spent a little bit more time listening, maybe they would have understand that a thumbprint's just not quite enough. Um, I, I sometimes struggle with this, but it, but it kind of goes back to McLuhan. Um, okay. McLuhan... Um, um, says that that as literate culture develops, you know, as literate culture developed, and and he, he talked about the Gutenberg galaxy. So so Gutenberg, of course, was the guy who invented the first printing press back around 1440. Mm-hmm. Um, gradually after that, you had a mass marketing or a mass distribution of books. Um, before that, you literally had to have one monk spending a lifetime <laughs> right. producing a Bible. Um, after that, you got the gradual diffusion of, of text all over the place, books, um, so, that, so that people started getting used to the idea of reading. And uh, there's a lot of habits and practices associated with reading, which, um, um, which we have gradually evolved over, over five centuries. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it's it's just a way of thinking. But what it wh- where it leads to, and the other aspect of it is that as an as individuals, we learn to read almost before we are conscious. Hmm. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's hard for us to remember a, a time when we couldn't read. Right. It's it, it's not like we learn to read when we're thirty five, and you know we can remember up to then. Oh, we had problems with this or problems with that, but but since then we haven't had problems. No, we learn to read when we're about four. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's very hard for us to remember what it was like not to know how to read. So so the result of this, the combination of all of these um, habits and practices that we've accumulated unconsciously and internalized over five centuries, combined with our um, the fact that we don't have any personal memory of a time when we were illiterate leads us to a situation in McLuhan's view where we simply have an incredibly hard time understanding what it would be like to be illiterate, mm, right. and, and, and we, just, we just can't imagine it. So, well, and it becomes our worldview. It becomes yeah. our it becomes our, our our lens. And this, I guess, is what I mean about perspective and the philosophical edge to it. It just we see everything else through that, right? And 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 come to understand the whole notion of literacy through that. Like you say, that uh, that dupification, you know, we've been duped as literate people, which I think is kind of wonderful. Mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me um, a little bit more about uh, some of the tools uh, that you're using. I mean, I, I know it's difficult when, when, when I guess uh, the listeners can't see it, and I'm just flipping through it right now, but... You know, uh, under the, I'm looking at what appears to be uh, a transaction book, something that you would get at the Royal Bank here in, in Toronto, uh, with a date and, and, a, and an image and a deposit and an image and a balance, and then what appears to be a hand and a pencil or a hand and a pen. So, can you talk talk a little bit about the metaphorical edge there, or the uh, the importance of the image? Uh, yes. Um, 
if we're going to accomplish financial numeracy um, or financial inclusion in our <laughs> Which is a wonderful phrase, by the way. That's got to be the title of the book you're going to write, Brett, isn't it? Um, you mean financial inclusion? Yeah. Is there a book called Financial Inclusion? Because if there isn't, you need to write it. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the, 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 there there have been a number of uh, this. This is there's been a lot of talk about financial inclusion. I'm sure. Over, yeah. Over over recent years. Um, but if we're going to achieve financial inclusion, um, and in particular in my mind, this tends to be about savings inclusion, because I think credit inclusion more or less looks after itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the market as it is going is, and 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 you know, a lot of people have lost their interest in microfinance because they say, well, that's that that's that's been done. What I what what I keep coming back to is is no, the microcredit part of it's maybe been done, but the micro micro savings part has not, and that's a really right. really important forgotten piece. Um, uh, so, but if we're going to achieve it, um, we need to. Um, I, in my personal opinion, we need to develop certain basic levels of financial numeracy. Hmm. You know, we live in a in an information crazed era, and one of the things that we've not paid attention to is that information is also what makes financial inclusion ultimately work. Right. It's not just a matter of putting money in the right person's hands at the right time. It's a matter of making sure that the right kind of information flows um, across a transactional, across it, it flows in a transaction between two people, so that both people feel confident about that transaction and they're willing to complete it. Because as long as that information is missing, we will still have market failure. Right. So what what I'm trying to do with these tools is is bring that information in in a way that oral people can use and understand. Mm-hmm. When I refer to oral people, I'm referring to those who are either, for practical purposes, illiterate, um, or else are, at the very least, living in communities where almost everybody is illiterate. And so they're very, they, they, they get out, they, they don't, they haven't developed the habits and practices associated with literacy, because most of the things that happen in these communities are geared to the needs of, of oral, preliterate people. Right. And there's all kinds of ways of managing information which are geared to the needs of preliterate people. It's just that we literates don't tend to think about them and yeah. don't tend to use them and don't tend to respect the fact that they exist or, 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 right. or get strategic about levering them. And then, in a, in a sense, get, they get forgotten, or at least that aspect of, 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 of financial inclusion gets forgotten. Right, right. So, so, so what I've done with this, what, what I want really is to create a situation where people can move into the modern financial sector, and they can acquire the basic skills that are required to, to, to operate competently within it. Um, and so to do that, so, so the, the passbook that you were referring to earlier, um, a passbook really is a whole bunch of cells, a whole bunch of boxes. And um, those boxes confuse the hell out of oral people. Right. Because, um, because they've never seen those kind of boxes. Mm-hmm. They don't see them very often. Even when they do see them, when they see them in the form of, say, a calendar, um, a large fraction of them simply don't use a calendar, don't know how to use it, aren't comfortable with it, and don't really understand the purpose of it. Um, calendar time is not normal to village life. Um, hmm. the, the kind of time that you find in village life is, is natural time. It's, right. it's, it's seasonal time cycles. Um, it's about the birthing of the animals and the, and the harvesting of the crops and the planting. And, and, and it's not about calendar time or hours or, or anything of that sort. It's a great phrase, yep. So, and, and really um, important from a development perspective. It really is. I can't tell you how many people, uh, you know, that I've worked with who just, including myself, who just get infuriated because so many folks that we, white folk, work with don't know what calendar time means. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and our usual response is to let people sink or swim. Right. And, right. and my response to that is, no, that's not what we should do. We should, we should reach out a friendly hand mm. um, and try to it's enter good. into a discussion between literate culture and oral culture, uh, a respectful dialogue between yeah. literate culture and oral culture. That, that well, where's the, pay, where's the empathy, right? Where's, where's the ability to listen? Where's the, the, the community spirit in sink or swim? I mean, that's, that's right. yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's more like exclusion, it seems to me. 
Well, I think, you know, we, 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 we leave these sink-or-swim propositions on the table all the time, and then we say, oh, and we're desperately trying to include people, and here's all the things we're doing. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> There's right. There's a bit of a blind spot there. Right, sure there is, yeah, yeah. Without a doubt. So, so um, um, yeah, and in terms of, in, so, so the passbook has a lot of cells in it, which uh, people find confusing. And I, I found out a number of years ago when I was going around talking to people about their passbooks, I, w- I, would, I would ask them questions like, so supposing you come in tomorrow and you do a transaction, you, you deposit some money, uh, where would that transaction go? And, you know, I, 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 I was talking to large numbers of mm-hmm. poor people who are already members of some kind of financial microfinance organization. And, and, but they, they, they were illiterate people because those are the ones I talked to um, and and they were they they had no idea right they had no idea where it would go even though it's really obvious because of course it's been filled up up to that point so 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 it's just the next cells over right right but right. But, but it's easy for us to say that yeah <laughs> are they the next cells over o- o- over to the right down <laughs> right yeah yeah o- o- over back to the left again and and you know how how does that work and why um, so, so what I've what I've been doing is is developing navigation images. So I, so I put in images which help people to navigate. Um, so images that show, for example, where the column is for deposit. So at the top, um, it'll usually have the word deposit or or something like it in the local language, um, and I will put an image which represents deposit in the minds of the people. Um, so a typical example is in Cambodia. Um, they have these little little clay pots that they they buy in the markets that have um, holes in them, and they collect money at home. Uh, they 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 put cash into these little clay pots. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have one of them actually on my on my bookshelf. It's a it's a turtle, and it's it's about you know eight inches long, um, and it's it's painted red and it's very very cheap. You can buy them for you know, five cents in the market, uh, and and you know you fill it up with cash, and when you have a usably large amount of of, of money, um, you smash it, break it, and then take it and you and you spend it, right? Hmm. So uh, that's that's at least piggy bank. People use them, so so it's like paying this small service fee for having having a having a current account, right? Um, and and the only but there there are risks associated with that, of course. Uh, you know, um, the husband in the family may decide that uh, he's not going to wait for a usably large sum of money. He's going to just come and smash it and right. and do something else with it. And you know, so so there's 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 reasons why that's not a not an ideal scenario. But in any case, um, everybody recognizes that as a deposit. So so we we create. We created for for the, the Cambodian contest. We created a picture of one of these with with a hand putting putting cash in it and put it at the top of the deposit column. Right, right, right. So so for each column, we just use um, we just use different images that are designed to um, uh, signal which um, which cells people would put. Um, yeah, well, root, root, put rooting it in rooting it in their culture. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Brett, we gotta we gotta come to 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 an end here in, in the next couple of minutes, and and uh, I wanted to you sound to me, uh, and and having met you and spoken to you a couple times now, uh, you sound very positive. You sound like you know the world is going to be a better place, and that you are hopeful, and that change is coming, and change is you know, and that's kind of why I do this podcast. I I'm, I'm or this you know, and and do interviews like this because I want to. Talk to people who are changing the world, you know, one sort of one uh, one domino at a time, I guess. On your site, uh, you've got a comment here, 460,000 uh, and, uh, sorry, I can't even say it and I can read it. It's a number <laughs> you have under the word numeracy and it's 460,050. There you go. And you say below, nearly a billion people can't read this number. And then you got in square brackets, interestingly enough, period, yet. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. That sounds pretty hopeful to me. You got you got your work cut out for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think so. But I'd I'd like to see um uh you know I'd I'd like to see a hundred million people acquire 
basic um, financial numeracy skills in the next 10 years. Uh, you, you, you know, we're coming into an era of mobile banking, and in principle, everybody with a mobile phone, and most people have one, uh, can, um, yep. in that situation, um, participate in the financial system. But if they don't trust cash, mm-hmm. and if they don't, can't recognize a digit like that, then I, I think it's very unlikely that they're going to be enthusiastic about jumping in. So, sure. So we, 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 we still have some work to do that... that um, uh, I was at a... I, I, and we got to wrap it up here in a second, but I'm sure you'll be able to put a period on this. In Cambodia, I need to transfer some money to a friend in... Uh, somebody, a Cambodian friend in Siem Reap. A couple of... $300 U.S. cash, which, you know, it's a fair bit of money to me, never mind to a, a, a friendly Cambodian. I go to a, a place in the market, and it's a stall. And it's a brand, and it's an organization, and I can't remember the name of it right now. Wing? Wing, thank you. Huge in Cambodia now. Wing. And uh, listeners should check it online. Quite the success story, it seems. And so I've got to send 300. So I've got to give this guy who, I'm not, they're not looking dubious at all, but I'm, I'm standing in the middle of a Khmer market. I, I'm the only white guy who's six foot two. I'm the only white guy, right? Balding, right? I pull my cash out and I'm going, I, well, let me get this straight. I'm giving, what, what is going on here? So they charged me about four bucks U.S., and I got a, they gave me this little receipt with a number. And I know I, I sound like a kid as I explained this, but it was awesome to me. <laughs> and I texted uh, soon, uh, and boom, he had the money. He went to his wing, um, you know, booth, wherever the heck it was. And they're all over Cambodia. And he had his money. And, I, and I'm standing there, and I'm using an ABM machine all the time. And I understand I would like to think I'm financially literate, et cetera, et cetera. Also, my friends are laughing in the background right now. And yet even, you know, I was quite uncomfortable with the situation. And for me, I guess, it wasn't about the numbers or that it was digital. It was about trust. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's, that's really what you're talking about here in a sense, isn't it? Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I mean, finance is always about trust. And, uh, and you know, I... But... but but this this this, uh, this kind of mobile money uh, process is certainly the wave of the future, and um, there's uh, there have been there have been losses within it, and mm-hmm, there sure. are within every financial um, new financial innovation, especially ones that are new. <laughs> yeah, of course, sort of, sort of emerging. But yeah, but for the for the most part, it's a it's a pretty reliable and workable system, and and. And of course, it's it's one that's left ahead in the developing world. I mean, uh, I was I was noting recently that there's something like 60 times as many people uh, on a per capita basis in sub-Saharan Africa have a mobile money account as do in North America. Wow. And uh, <laughs> wow. And I, I I guess it'll come to us eventually. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, listen, Brett, thank you for joining us today. I, I, uh, I've learned a ton. I hope my listeners have, too. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's, um, it's affirming and encouraging to know that uh, you, you know, people are working on these kinds of issues. But uh, it's myoralvillage.org. That's M-Y-O-R-A-L, village.org. Check them out online. Um, I'm certainly going to include the links in a variety of different places, but really appreciate you spending some time with us today, Brett. Yeah, thank you, David. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.